Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We're able to observe our own thinking. Mm. So you can, and the best way to get good at that, I think, is to whatever your belief is, I have people like write out their whole story the way they believe it. Like, let's get those thoughts out. And everybody wants to tell you all their thoughts they believe are true. (laughs) Right. So you like do that even for yourself, like write the story the way you already believe it. But then you have to give yourself the task of looking for evidence of the opposite proposition. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is like kind of where the lawyer brain comes in handy a little bit. So if your thought is like, there's something wrong with me because I'm not married, you would go look for evidence of the contrary. Right. Or if your thought is, I've never been in a real relationship, you go look for evidence of the contrary. Or if your thought is, I'm not good at my job look for evidence of the contrary, right? If you were cross-examining that witness and they were unreliable, what would you look for? What would you ask them? So we can learn how to look for evidence of the contrary. And I still do that all the time. Like throughout the day, as my brain says some random thing to me that is painful and probably not true, (laughs) I'm like, okay, what's the evidence of the contrary? Like how can I see that things could be exactly the opposite? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Kara, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your story by way of your publicist, Cher Hale, who is the one person who to this day we have never said no to when she recommends a guest. <laughs> so that says a whole hell of a lot in terms of, uh, you know, her taste and also her ability to actually find guests for us that really fit the bill. So uh, on that note, uh, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and how did that influence and shape the choices that you have made with your life and your career? Mm, interesting. Um, so my mother's was a federal public defender, which means that she worked for the federal government. She was a lawyer for uh, what's called indigent defendants, defendants who can't afford to hire their own lawyer. So mm. I think from her side, uh, I well, th first of all, I just got being a lawyer, which was my first career, uh, but also just a real emphasis on social justice and helping um, those who are less fortunate or less privileged or have less access to opportunity. Um, I think, you know, it was kind of funny when I was growing up to realize that like most people were learning that the cops were the good guys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My family, we were learning like, don't trust the cops. Uh, yeah. Because she saw, you know, so much firsthand before it was as big of a topic in most white privileged circles, the, you know, um, ab abuses of power against poor people and people of color in the legal system. So, uh, and she came from a family of doctors, just a kind of emphasis on um, learning and social justice and service. 
And then, and that really influenced the first part of my career very heavily. I was a lawyer before I became a coach uh, and I was a social justice lawyer. I, I focused, I didn't do criminal defense work. I did reproductive rights work, but kind of very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that emphasis on, even though I'm no longer a lawyer, that emphasis on service obviously still informs my work. And mm-hmm. I think learning early on to kind of question authority and question what we're taught. And then my father actually is a rare book and photography dealer. And that didn't seem as relevant to me when I was in my legal career. I didn't really identify with his work as much in the first couple of decades of my life. But then, of course, I decided to um, leave my career as a, I had been a reproductive rights lawyer and then I became an, a legal academic. So I was, you know, on the path to becoming a law professor and I decided to, uh, jump ship and become a life coach as one does. Uh-huh. And so I started, you know, and even when I first did that, I still didn't think of myself as a business person. Uh, but over the first couple of years of being a coach and starting my business, I began to, I did a lot of work to kind of identify as on, as an entrepreneur and change my thoughts about, creating value and making money. And then it sort of turned out that a lot of the lectures my father had given me growing up that I had maybe rolled my eyes at (laughs) about what creates value and what creates a market and how to think about pricing and selling services and, um, and really just how to think about money and the creation of money and what to do with it in general, all of that became much more, um, relevant for me. So I think, you know, they've both impacted it in different ways. And interestingly, my father had a kind of similar career progression to me, which is that he went to law school, but then he never practiced, but he worked in kind of his family business, which was real estate development for a few years and really didn't like it. And then did what seemed like this crazy thing of kind of quitting that to start his own, you know, rare book business, which did not sound like a, you know, sensible plan to his family at the time. So, you know, when I look at the overarching narrative, like we actually both went through a similar process of doing what was kind of more expected and more traditional in our family. And then in our kind of early to mid thirties, having a like screeching halt Mm -hmm. (laughs) moment and a like creating a whole new and different thing that was more creative, more entrepreneurial, more risky, and kind of more in line with what we wanted to do in the world. Yeah. Did they encourage any particular per- career paths for you? Like, did was there any sort of, hey, you should go be a lawyer? Oh, yeah. You could be a lawyer, a doctor, or a professor. Those yeah. were like the three options. Well, I mean, that, that sounds like the Indian kid narrative as well. So Yeah, it's just the Jewish family, which is also, but it's so hilarious because my father had jilted that to be an entrepreneur, you know? And so when I quit to become a life coach, they were understandably kind of concerned. I finally had to say to my father, like, does anything about my story sound familiar to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, do you see any parallels here? I mean, even, even down to the idea that we both, his, the person he, like, we moved to California for six months when I was like six because he apprenticed to this rare book dealer out there. And my teacher and coach also lived in California. So I was like, even down to the fact that we both found some strange person in California (laughs) to go learn from for this new career. Like it's very parallel, but Mm. you know, for your kids, you always want the like safe, secure route. Yeah. So one thing that, you know, I know from having read your about page, what's interesting is you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, you're taught to question authority. And the funny thing is you went to Yale, you know, as an undergrad, you got a a JD from Harvard and Mm -hmm. you also mentioned privilege. So I wonder how you think about um, education in the wake of kind of, you know, what we've seen in terms of the college admission scandal, student loan debt, uh, and all of these things, particularly as somebody who was educated at one of these schools that, you know, was involved in the scandal like this. 
Uh, I guess I'd like to ask you to be more specific. What do you mean? What do I think about well, education? I mean, I guess the, the, the thing is that, you know, as somebody who has, you know, graduated from one of these sort of top-notch schools, right? Uh, mm-hmm. How do you look at the value of education now in the wake of sort of the last, you know, five to six years? I mean, like I said, rising cost of tuition, you know, you see this like massive scandal. And I think that the one thing that became, you know, super apparent to me was that, wow, I really do have, uh, you know, I've lived my life from a place of privilege. My dad is a college professor. There was no question as to whether we were ever going to mm-hmm. go to college. And so I wonder, you know, in your opinion, one, does education, traditional education, particularly because you've kind of now gone this sort of opposite route, like what is the role of it, I guess, is really mm-hmm. and the value? Well, I think that that depends a lot. I guess there's two things I would say. One is I do think there's an overemphasis on getting on everybody you know, going into $200,000 worth of debt to get a liberal arts degree, right? So we have like too many college graduates who can't get jobs. And then we have national um, shortages or scarcities in pretty well-paying jobs you don't need a four-year degree for. Like, you know, I think I think in nursing, you can still get an associate's degree in nursing or like even being a plumber. There's like a lot of trades. We've like lost, I think, the value of some of those trades because because of the narrative that everybody should go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I for sure don't think that everyone needs to go to get a four-year liberal arts education. I think it depends a lot on, you know, what you want to do in your life. And I don't think kind of valorizing that over everything else makes sense or is helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that, you know, what I felt like when I discovered that, um, everything I teach now, but basically that like your thoughts cause your feelings that you can learn how to process your emotions and like you can learn emotional regulation skills and you can learn sort of critical thinking about your own mind. Like these are all tools and skills that I don't feel like are really taught in most schools at all. It doesn't matter how fancy or not fancy the school is. Mm -hmm. And so it's like we're learning, you know, trigonometry and not this. Now, maybe trigonometry teaches us to think in a certain way that is helpful later in life even if we're not literally doing trigonometry. But I do, I think there's a big gap in every form of education. Forget college, like first grade education. Most people, I mean, it's like we assume that people are going to learn their kind of life and human skills at home, but most people's parents don't know them either. So most people aren't. And I think like a lot of the kind of suffering and stress and problems in the world would be solved if people had better abilities to... um, you know, go through their own experience, process their own emotions, be able to choose how they want to think about things. We would have less um, kind of chronic and persistent mental illness and anxiety and trauma and all of those, all of those things. So that's, I guess, two. And then I guess the third thing I would say is just from my experience, like, I, you know, there, I do think there is still a role for higher education, of course. And I think that, um, the kind of coach that I am would not have been possible without the education I had. Now it didn't have to be at Harvard or Yale, but learning how to, I am part of the reason that I am as good a coach as I am is actually because of law school and having gone through the process of learning to think extremely logically and critically and spot the flaws in people's arguments and chains of reasoning. Mm -hmm. Because what I find is that most people, um, it's not that people are irrational. Exactly. They are, it's like they have a, there's a set of, rational way there's like a set of rational tools sort of that people are using in their thoughts but they either have a premise that is irrational so they're like reasoning from a flawed premise like i'm unlovable like if that's your premise and you're going to interpret everything to match that mm-hmm. and it's all going to look very reasonable to you or they are making a 
like one of a couple of predictable errors in their thinking that like they are conflating correlation with causation or they are ignoring cognitive bias or they are whatever they're doing they're it's like spottable i can see it from the outside because i'm trained to look for the parts in an argument like your brain is basically constantly constructing an argument for you about what reality is mm right? Because you're hallucinating pretty much most of the time <laughs> is the neurology. Like you're making it all up yeah. your own experience. And so your brain is constantly like painting a portrait for you and, and using human reason, using critical thinking or what it thinks is critical thinking to tell you what's happening in the world. And so having gone through that very specific training of law school, I actually think is part of what makes me a great coach for people who are highly analytical, highly verbal, mm -hmm you know, highly rational or irrational, but who are very kind of neuro, neuro, um, yeah, kind of neuro focused, like very cognitive focused yeah. people in their lives. Not everybody is kind of focused on their thoughts all the time, right. but for people who are, I'm a great coach because of that. So, you know, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. If that's yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Answer, well, but. I mean, that, that was one of the things that made me say yes, because I remember this line from your, your about page where you said, you know, that doesn't mean I'm a woo woo divine feminist channeling goddess who spins law of attraction BS. And I was like, okay, that was what got me because I was like, okay, you know what? Good. Somebody who actually has some sort of semblance of like, you know, being in touch with reality to back all of this up. Um, so I want to actually come back to all of this because I, I think the rest of our conversation will actually be about everything you've just said. Um, but there are two mm -hmm. areas that I want to revisit about your um, education as well as your time as a lawyer. So one thing that we talked about is sort of privilege. And I often think that even, you know, when the people who come here to Unmistakable Creative and even my own life is are all just examples of privilege. Like if you think about it, the person who is working, you know, three jobs to keep the lights on or, you know, barely making it paycheck to paycheck, sometimes I feel like this conversation is completely irrelevant to them. It's almost a disservice. Uh, and I wonder how you think about that. Uh, yeah, I strongly disagree with that. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I'm not saying I disagree that privilege exists, but I don't think it's a disservice at all. And I think that part of the the kind of push of my work is I spent time as a social justice lawyer. We're also focused on external structural um, solutions, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that work needs to be happening for sure. It is happening. We don't spend almost any time paying attention to the internal experience and the emotional and cognitive coping tools that people need yeah. to deal with whatever their experience is. Mm -hmm. And I think that I mean, I do, you know, it's it's a funny thing to say because on one hand, I do happen to come from privilege in, in one set of ways. I also live in the world, in a fat phobic world as a fat woman. And that's a different set of, you know, a different axis of oppression that I experience. And I've used this work on my experience of that. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like I've just come from pure privilege, whatever, if that, whatever that would even mean or however that would exist. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, I have colleagues in the life coaching industry who I know personally and know, I mean, let me, I mean, let me put it this way. So I'm in a, you know, a group, a mentoring group with my teacher and there's maybe six or seven of us who are making seven figures in our business. And it's really a variety. Like a couple of us do come from upper middle class or upper class families and have fancy educations. And then one of the women in the group's parents didn't graduate from middle school. And she was the first person in her family to go to college and she grew up poor and she's the first person in her family to ever make any money. And then another one also grew up lower middle class and her parents were always in debt and she, you know, had to pay her. She, I think, did go to college, but she paid her own way and she's created this business too. So 
you know, I don't think that, uh, I think that privilege and resources and all that stuff matters. I just don't think it's everything. And I think that when we talk about it, like it's everything, that's when we do a disservice because we aren't going in my lifetime, we're not going to change all of the structural oppression problems out there. Mm -hmm. Right. And we should be working on them. But if we say that's all that matters, then we aren't giving people any tools to deal with the reality they're in. Mm during their own lifetime. And I just think it's so fascinating that like everybody thinks it's a great idea to teach meditation in at-risk schools. But if you start talking about like life coaching or coaching tools or like managing your mind or thinking on purpose, all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, that's ridiculous and so woo and, you know, so privileged, right? So there's this weird also discourse in in this the social justice privilege, whatever discourse where like certain things are acceptable, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, to say. And like, yeah, like I said, nobody ever will complain that you're going to teach at-risk third graders about meditation. Everybody thinks that's amazing. Right. But if we start talking about let's teach them that the structural conditions aren't the only thing they do matter, they're not the only thing that matters, that learning how to think on purpose and have more emotional resources and manage their emotions better and be able to believe in bit, something bigger than what they see, let's also teach them that, then all of a sudden you're somehow denying that there are external problems and that's not what we're doing at all. You know, I come from a Jewish family and so obviously there's a lot of Holocaust talk in my family and growing up. And and that's, of course, when I first started doing this work and started telling my family about it, that was the usual objection I got was like, what are you saying? We could just be happy about the Holocaust, <laughs> right? And number one, coaching is not about being happy all the time. <laughs> but the kind of coaching I do, right, has a lot of mindfulness in it. It's a lot of like, the full spectrum of human life is positive and negative emotion. We want to get better at handling that because most of us hate negative emotion and spend our lives running away from it. So we're not trying to be happy about everything. But also, I think the Holocaust is the perfect example. So, example, so Viktor Frankl, who you know lived through the Holocaust and wrote a book, which I now have completely blanked on the name Man of. Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning, exactly. So he says in the book, one of the last, the last freedom left to man is the freedom to choose his own attitude regardless of the circumstances, mm-hmm. right? And so this work isn't like, oh, genocide doesn't matter, right? It's the world is full of both beautiful and horrible things. And we yes, we should be working to make fewer of the horrible things in policy and structural ways. But also we are all going to experience some kind of suffering and obstacle and challenge. And we should all have the tools to make our own meaning in life and believe that we can have an experience more than maybe what we saw around us or grew up with or was modeled for us or is happening politically or whatever it is. Like the the human ability to persevere and believe and achieve and thrive under adverse circumstances is the most, I think, sacred thing about us. And so to tell someone, well, because you have three jobs or because you experience discrimination, we're not going to even talk about this stuff Mm. to me is a much bigger disservice. One of my favorite ways to spread the message of our mission here at the unmistakable creative is through speaking. In the last few years, I've delivered keynotes and workshops to professional associations, large companies like Citibank and Meredith Corp, and even small ones on how creativity can lead to better working environments, fuel innovation, and increase the bottom line. So if you think I'd be a fit for your upcoming event and want to learn more, Visit speaking.unmistakablecreative.com and get in touch. Again, that's speaking.unmistakablecreative.com. So I want to talk briefly about um, your time as a reproductive rights lawyer. Uh, I mean, how has that work um, shaped and influenced the work that you do today? 
Uh, well, I think two, I mean, the, on one level, just a continuation of like legal training and thinking, um, before I, you know, I now work basically on with women on confidence and kind of figuring out in specific, the ways that socialization and patriarchy and, you know, racism and classism, whatever else impact the way that they think about themselves and Mm -hmm. their lives and learning how to, you know, start the process of taking that power back within our own minds, not just outside of ourselves. So, but I started with lawyers. I coached lawyers for the first year. And so I think, um, I mean, litigating definitely like any lawyer job was a window into, it's almost kind of, I think that one of the reasons that I am such a firm believer that we can change the way that we think is, I mean, obviously I've done it to myself, but law school is such a like intense process of coming in with one kind of brain and leaving with another mm-hmm. <laughs> that a lot of people don't experience. Yeah. Like you really get taught how to think in a completely different way over the course of three years, which is not a very long time. Uh-huh. And then to see how much that infects the way that people think about their whole lives because you only have one brain. So if you train it to think a certain way, that's what it does. Mm. So I definitely saw that in litigation and just sort of had the opportunity to watch like, oh, wow, like, like, why is litigation so horrible? <laughs> like, why are people so stressed out? What's going on? Is it really the job? It's seeing how they were trained to think. But then I think the second part is really what I um, have been talking about in the last, you know, maybe 10 minutes, which is I spent 10, 15 years working on external structural solutions to inequality or to oppression. And I I think that those are important and they need to be done. But one of the things that I observed in doing that work was that it doesn't, I mean, changing the circumstance outside of us does not change how we feel inside. Mm -hmm. And I think like we see that on every level, like in people's personal lives, it's very easy to see. And most of my clients have all been like, okay, well, if I just get into a good school, I'm going to feel good about myself. If I just get this job, I'm going to feel good about myself. If I just get married, I'm going to feel good about myself. If I just have kids, it's like always this next external thing. If I just lose weight, I'm going to feel good about myself. If I just get plastic surgery, I'm going to feel good about myself. Like people are always chasing these external things that will, that they think will finally make them happy. And that doesn't work. And we can see that on a personal level. And I think most people, if pressed, can think about that in their own lives and see how that has happened. Mm-hmm. We've gotten something we really wanted. And then we have like a two-week high, yep. right? And then we're like back to our old thought patterns. Mm-hmm. But I don't But I don't think that we have really thought about what that means for structural and policy work, yeah. which is that we do need, I do think we should keep trying to change those external con- circumstances in that way. But if we don't teach people, like if you are raised to think that men are all that men are smarter than women and so you're not smart enough as a woman we can in, we can institute a quota on corporate boards mm-hmm. or whatever right but but it's not going it, to that external change is not going to change what's inside your brain yeah we have to do both and so i think working in you know being a litigator and seeing that and seeing how you know people social justice, legal work has such a high dropout rate over time, such a high burnout rate because people are so stressed out and they don't have any tools to manage their anxiety and their distress. And so I think it was kind of an education in seeing how even if we won a case, like even if we change something, yeah, everybody feels good for like a week or two Mm -hmm. and then they feel terrible again (laughs) because their brain is still thinking the same thoughts. And so... It just was kind of really, I think, drove home for me. Yeah, I think that. And on a personal level, I ended up feeling like, and one of the reasons that I changed careers was that 
I was a, you know, uh, you know, I had like some uh, modicum of talent as a lawyer. Uh, and I think that I was doing good work even as an academic, but, and I was successful in those fields, but I just never felt, especially in litigation, I just didn't feel like, I didn't think that it mattered that it was me doing it. Like, I didn't think I was contributing something incredibly specific that no one else could do. Mm. Um, as a litigator, definitely not as a academic, maybe a little more because no one's going to have like the exact confluence of ideas I would have. But I didn't think that I was like providing some brilliant breakthrough that the legal was you know, that the legal academy or the world really needed that someone else couldn't do. And in this work, I feel like I am. I feel like nobody else is talking about this work in the way that I am and no one else is teaching it the way that I am. And it's something that the world needs. And, you know, that might sound a little grandiose, but you kind of have to be when you have a big mission. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Well, so, let's let's get into specifics. Um, I think that you know you mentioned earlier, you know, sort of being overweight, or and so one of the things you mentioned on your website about the two things that get in the way are social conditioning and self-critical talk. And if you look at our social yeah. conditioning, particularly around you know what is success, what is beauty, right? You know, beauty is Cindy Crawford on the cover of a magazine. Success is, you know, Ferraris and McMansions. And, you know, we're all made to feel. And this is something that one of our podcast guests, this guy, um, Will Storr, said. He said, you know, we live in a world where everything on display kind of teaches us that if you're not Beyonce, Oprah, or Steve Jobs, then you're failing. Like, that is our sort of mm-hmm. self-talk that is really reinforced by the media around us. So let's talk mm-hmm. about this idea of retraining your mind. But I want to look at it through sort of your lawyer lens that you were referring to at the very beginning of our conversation, where you talked about perspective and premise and, you know, constructing arguments. So can you one, walk us through how you undid the social conditioning and self-critical talk in your own life to deal with your own insecurities. And then let's talk about how other people can apply it to theirs. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, the hu- a huge, I've worked on so many different areas. So, but let's take your, so uh, I don't, I don't tend personally to use the word overweight because it implies that there's sort of a correct weight a person sure. should be. Um, but as a fat woman, right, we are, it's a perfect example of a place where there's actual human variety right? Like if you walk down the street, especially if you live someplace diverse like New York, like I do, it's like going to the dog park and thinking all the dogs should look exactly alike, right? (laughs) Right? Like there's obviously a huge variety in what humans look like on the streets in New York. There's people who are like four foot five and eight foot tall, right? Mm -hmm. And people of like every color and every features and every weight from 90 pounds to 400 pounds, like people are all over the place. Um, So, and the truth is that people are obviously sexually attracted to other people who are all over the place. Mm -hmm right? There's a huge variety. So we have this real life variety, but then we have the media that holds up just like this one specific thing, right? Which is like being like tall, thin, white, and able-bodied, which is a very minute vanishing percentage of the population. Although um, if you live, I live around the corner from a building that's full of models, literally, (laughs) where they put up all the like teenage models. So Uh in my neighborhood, it's a little higher. Um, So I do think that I think that the media, of course, plays into it, as does everything else, though, right? So I think the way that I think of our brains is like it's like there's it's like open source code, and you don't know that everybody's in there programming it, mm-hmm. right? So you're as you're growing up, you're getting all these different messages from your parents and your school and the media and your friends and your teachers and what you read and like the TV and the video games, like what everything that you are observing. The human brain is a pattern spotting, meaning making machine. Right. And so you're constantly observing stuff and formulating stories and being taught what to think and then looking for more evidence of it. And then it all gets internalized. And part of the problem is that it comes out as your own voice in your head. So if my brain said to me in like a a male TV announcer voice, like only thin people are beautiful or something, right? Like on the six o'clock news, I would be like, oh, that's not my thought. Like that's Mm -hmm. weird. But it comes out as my voice saying, like, you know, no one's going to love you if you look like that that's what everybody experiences. They absorb all of this messaging and conditioning and then it comes out in our own thoughts. It sounds like our own voice. We think it must be true because we're thinking it. And that's why people get, have such cognitive dissonance where they might be feminist or anti-racist or whatever, right? They have these political or conceptual beliefs and then there's always this but, right? It's like, I don't think women should have to conform to male beauty standards, but I really worry about my cellulite, right? Or whatever it is. We have this like dissonance mm-hmm. there because one is an intellectual thought about a concept and one is just a thought that comes out as like an organic thought about us. And usually we learn those intellectual concepts later than we learn the first mm-hmm. thoughts, 
right? The first thoughts have gone in early, unconsciously come out as our own voice. Then if we're lucky, maybe middle school, some people not until college or later, we're like, oh, wait, what? Someone teaches me that I, you know, that that's not true or that that's a bias or whatever it is. So I think that's where it comes from. And then the way that you have, the way that you work on it is really a three-step process. One is um, the first and most important step, but less cognitive is just learning how to experience negative emotion, which (laughs) most of us are so unwilling to do. Uh, So most of us just spend our whole lives running around like chickens with our heads cut off, trying to get away from our negative feelings, which doesn't work because they're inside your body. (laughs) So wherever you try to go, they're coming with you. Uh, So I focus a lot on the cognitive in my when I'm, you know, on a podcast or whatever else, but that's actually the first thing I teach people to do is how to have a negative emotion without losing their minds. Yeah. Um, so we have to do that first <laughs> because you can't actually change them till you're willing to have them. You can't get access to your thoughts if you are constantly trying to numb yourself out or run away from your own brain, mm-hmm. right? And I, that's why we see like so much alcohol and drug addiction and porn and gambling and whatever, Netflix, like all the things that people do to like not be alone with their own yeah. thoughts. So you have to learn to be willing to have your emotions. I teach people how to process their emotions so that we can start getting awareness of the thoughts, which is really the second step is like, what's up in there? Most of us, we we treat our brain like it's like a bad neighborhood at night. <laughs> we don't want to go in there alone. Uh-huh. <laughs> we don't, right? Like, I'm going to get mugged. Something bad's going to happen up there. So we don't even know what we're thinking a lot of the time. I mean, constantly my clients will be like, I had no idea I believed that. In fact, that's contrary to everything I think I believe. Yeah. But, it, but it's in there. So we have to become aware of what the thoughts are. And then the third step is how we change those thoughts. And the way that I teach people to do that is um, I in particular, you know, people do this in a lot of different ways because I'm very analytical and was very skeptical. <laughs> I focus on a lot on what I call um, the thought ladder or which is basically just a process for how to go from what you believe now to what you want to believe in little mm-hmm. baby steps. So for the weight example, let's say you start, you know, you are, learn how to actually have your feelings. So you can see what's in your brain. And then you discover that you have the thought like, uh, no one is going to love me if this at this weight, right? Or like fat people don't find, fat, fat people don't find love, some, whatever it is. Yeah. Rat, and what you want to believe, of course, is like, of course I'm, I can find love or of course I'm, you know, attractive the way I am or of course people are attracted to me. Everybody's thoughts are a little bit different. Rather than just try to go straight there, this is why I think positive thinking and manifestation and whatever gets a bad name is that people try to start believing something that they are so far from believing. Mm-hmm. And so they don't get any emotional payoff and they don't keep doing it because they don't get any emotional payoff. It actually just makes everything feel worse. Because then you're like, that seems so far away and hopeless and impossible. I'm just going to give up. Yeah. And so I teach to really focus on one step at a time. So you don't try to believe I'm beautiful and amazing. I'm going to find love. You practice believing something like that's a human stomach when you see your stomach or Mm -hmm. some fat people are married. It's obviously true, right? You, You focus on believing small steps that are basically impossible to argue with. Yeah. Right, the human brain is very good at arguing. So, if you don't like a part of your body, rather than try to believe it's beautiful, you just try to replace the "I hate this" with "This is a chin." That's some people have chins like this, uh-huh. right? Whatever it is, with a very neutral thought. That's the first thing I think I teach that a lot of people don't teach. And then the second thing I think that's so crucial that gets overlooked is like how much you have to practice it. 
So another reason I think that thought work or, you know, positive thinking or whatever gets a bad rap is people come up with a new thought and then they think it's supposed to just magically replace the old (laughs) one. Yeah. They're like, oh, I thought it once. I wrote it on a post-it note. I, uh-huh. The old one's coming back up. Something's going wrong. It's not working, right? I'm like, well, you thought that old thought, what? I mean, think about if, you, like, if you're obsessed with whatever, your cellulite, you think about it 100 times a day. You thought about it 100 times a day for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing news that we don't have to match that, right? Like, yeah. we might, It could be the case that we'd have to think it 100 times a day for 20 years to change it. Thank God we don't. It actually will only take a few months usually, but you have to practice a lot. And I think this is a failing of a lot of teachers. And I understand why, because I'm seeing this happen to myself. As you get more and more practice at changing the way you think and believing new things, it does become easier for you to shift into new beliefs very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think people like lose touch with what it's like at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I think that I was lucky to, I don't, I think my, because I worked so hard at it, that progress has happened kind of fast for me, but it's actually good because it's not so long ago that it was very hard for me. And I still remember that. Yeah. And, na- and now, of course, I've trained people to teach that way as well. So I think that's the other thing that goes wrong with this movement sometimes. Like, I think my teacher now, 10, 15 years in this work, probably can just pick something insane to believe and believe it the next day. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like a muscle, you know, it's like right. a habit, it's like a skill. Yeah. It's a skill. It's like being your yo-yo ma. You can pick up a new piece of music and play it right away. Mm-hmm. But we have to remember, like people who are starting don't have that skill. Yeah. Well, and I, I really I, try to teach thought work. Like it's like learning an instrument. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be like, I practiced the cello once. Why aren't I yo-yo ma yet? Yeah. It's funny you say that because I remember when we were doing a course and, you know, like I wake up and I write a thousand words every morning at a minimum. And I remember the content strategist working with me said, he's like, you have to remember these people aren't you. You've done this for five (laughs) years. You're conditioned to be this way every day. He's like, you know, you can't just say, why can't these people just get their act together and do this? But that that actually raises a a question that I've asked multiple people in some form or another. And I think that your perspective and the way that you've approached this would give me a very fascinating answer. You know, like I think that personal development sort of has these three categories of people who fuel the industry, right? It's those people who, yeah, they might be people who are listening to this. They might be people who read books, whatever. They go to seminars, they hire coaches, and they're always just looking for the next fix, but nothing ever changes. Mm -hmm. Then you have these people who basically somebody comes to work with somebody like you, you become a catalyst for them and they mm-hmm. change. And then there's the people who basically would change whether they came to you or not, but they're, su- they're just wired that way that, you know what, mm-hmm. they, they make shit happen. Um, why is that? Like, what do you think accounts for that variation? I don't think that I think that those are the three groups of people. Interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I, I have not thought about this before, but as you're saying that, I don't feel like, oh yeah, that matches my experience mm-hmm. because I think... Yeah, I, that's not, I, I don't know. I don't feel a resonance with those three descriptors. Like, I think there are people who, like, I think that, that third group, people who make things happen no matter what, I have a lot of people, a lot of my clients are people who can make things happen in every other area of their life, mm-hmm. but they're, so they're very good at taking action. And they may even have, like, that has extended to, like, hiring different coaches before, going to seminars or whatever, but without like without ever learning to one have an emotion and two change their thoughts, it never feels any different on the inside, really. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I guess I know that's probably not a not a satisfying answer, but I don't. That's not kind of how I. I don't see those in those three different ways. Like I think all those people have the same problem. Mm-hmm. The people who keep hiring people and nothing changes. It's I think because they're not being taught the thing they need to know. 
Like there's so much, I had done a lot of therapy and coaching and meditation, yoga, I had done all these things, but I was constantly, number one, I wasn't learning the two crucial things I needed to learn, which is how to have a feeling, how to change my thoughts. But also I was, I was, um, I think a lot of people in any of those categories are trying, they're hustling for their own self-worth. So they're trying to change themselves so that they can finally like themselves and be good enough. And that hustle never ends until someone spots it, is able to call them on it and teaches them how to change it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Sorry, that's not very No, no, no. I, I again, you know, I, I'm not I don't you know when I ask that question, I don't necessarily want like a concrete answer. I just you know, raise okay. it for the sake of discussion because I think it's it's interesting. Yeah. Uh the what I see is as the spread for me is like at least in my clients, is that I would say like a quarter of my clients, a quarter, not my, a quarter of people come across my work, like, listen, well, I guess even clients, they liked it enough to pay for it, but they basically don't do anything, Mm -hmm. not because they have some kind of character flaw. I think what happens is those are the people who are unable to tolerate discomfort and overcome their own perfectionism enough to suck at something. Yeah. So they want it to be the perfect solution. They listen to the podcast. That resonates. They think I can help them. They sign up with me, but then they just are not able to get over that first hump of not doing it perfectly and all of their shame about that. Uh, And so those people just sort of disappear. Mm -hmm. And then I would say there's like 50% of people who find the work useful and it maybe even really changes things for them in like one or two areas of their life, but they've sort of cabined it in their brain. It's like, this was really helpful for my body image, but obviously my mother needs to be different. Right. (laughs) Right? It's like, they're like, it applies to like these three things, but then they keep some other stuff in their life that they don't ever apply it to. Mm -hmm. And they just like try to like, they just believe those are different. So I think those people, it's like, it helps them. It's an additional tool in their toolbox. Often those are the people who like do the program and they're like, okay, I'm good. You know, like I've learned these tools. I'm going to add them to everything else I've learned. I'm going to use them sometimes like on with my life. Yeah. And then there's a quarter of people who like me, I think (laughs) drink the Kool-Aid or like become the true believers, Uh you know, who, which sounds weirdly cultish, but I just mean like for me, once I learned this, it was like, when I learned that my thoughts are creating my feelings and I can change them and not everything I think is true, it was like going through the looking glass. Mm. There was like no way back. There was no way to unknow that I was creating my whole experience of reality in my own head. And even the areas that I didn't work on right away, or even if there's still ones I haven't worked on, I, I can't, I can't unknow that. And it changed everything about how I look at and live my life. So that's kind of the spread I see is like the quarter of people whose perfectionism is so crippling that they're not able to do it. They just can't tolerate it. Uh And right now, at least, like maybe in three years, one of them will be, you know, they might be like, wait, what was that thing that lady taught me? Like, what if I have a feeling, you know? And then that 50% that are like, this is helpful. It's nice. And then that quarter that are just like, oh my God, like the whole world is different now. Hey, it's Trini. I hope you're liking this episode of The Unmistakable Creative. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter.
so, you know, you were talking earlier about cognitive biases and sort of, you know, uncovering beliefs in people they didn't even know they have. So I think that to me, you know, when I, when I look at what you've learned from law school and you said, you know, sort of the way your brain is trained to look at arguments, um, I want to walk this through another example. Mm-hmm. So let's say example, you know, in, in my life, you know, something is wrong with me because I'm Indian 41 and single. My sister just got married. This is a problem mm-hmm. according to the culture mm-hmm. I grew up in. I'm a flight risk. So, you know, I need that. Where are you going to fly to? Well, I needed, I needed an example to, to frame it. Yeah, so, yeah, let's just, okay. you know, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, I'm okay. sure there are others that are better, but let's just use the default belief of something is wrong with me because that's yeah. probably more applicable to other people. Yeah. Yeah. Every human has that belief for sure. Yeah. So when you look at it through this lens of, you know, as a lawyer who says, okay, this is an argument, how, how do we use what you've just taught us uh, in that context? Like when, and what are the cognitive yeah. biases and those things that get in our way? I realize I just asked you like three questions in one. No, no, it's fine. So it depends. Like if, you know, there's a difference between like, how would I coach you? How would I have you coach yourself? But yeah. I actually, you know, most people come in and they're like, well, yeah, I think something's wrong with me, my self-esteem, whatever it is. And I usually recommend not trying to coach at that very abstract level Mm-hmm. Because the truth is, everybody thinks there's something wrong with them, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's such a huge belief. So I would totally zero in on like, okay, let's talk about this thing with your sister, mm-hmm. right? Like, okay, it's because you're 41 and single and Indian and unmarried. And then I would want to like even break that down. Like, which of those things really matters? Would it be okay if you were 31? Would it be okay if you weren't Indian? Would it be okay? No. Like, yeah, no, even if you were 31, people lump all this stuff together. Yeah. And sometimes it turns out that there's actually only one thing in there that's actually causing the thought problem, uh-huh. not everything. Yeah. Like it'll turn out, I'm not saying this is for you, but it'll turn out that somebody will be like, oh, it is because I'm 41. If I was 38, it would be okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Or someone will be like, oh, it actually has nothing to do with being Indian. I think, you know, if I try to imagine if I weren't, but I was still 41, that's really my problem. So we like would just kind of play with like what in this thought in right. this little cluster of thoughts is the right. I mean, and we would just pick one. Sometimes there's multiples. You always just want to pick one just right. to work with. And yeah. so let's say it turned out that this hypothetical person was like, oh, I really think it's my age. Like my cousin's 38 and I don't think there's anything wrong with them. But it turns out, I think that if you're over 40 and not married, that's how we know there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And then, so then I would, you know, depending on the client, there's a lot of different techniques, but I might one thing I might do is ask them to name a bunch of people who are over 40 who uh-huh. aren't married and okay. what do they think about them, right? I would ask, I would probably dig in a little more into like, why is that a problem? Like there's something wrong with you is kind of vague, right? Like what does it mean? Mm-hmm. A lot of people have a secret thing they think is the problem, right? So they'll say something vague like that. But when you start to dig in, it's like, so what is the thing that's wrong with you? It'll be like, it can be something so random, right? It might be yeah. like, I'm unlovable, or it might be like, because I snore. Like you really don't know right. and you can't assume people's brains are just hilarious and creative. Mm-hmm. So you have to like figure out. So I, what I, I mean, if you were, if I was going to like narrate what I'm doing in a conceptual way, it's like, I would start, um, we want to start like, I think of it like a knot and like, we want to start pulling all these threads loose, get them all laid out in front of us. Mm-hmm. Like, let's say it's like 10 threads tied up in a knot. Yeah. Get them all laid out in front of us. And that's like our 10 thoughts we've got about this situation. And then we're going to pick one to work on. And we're going to like see how that thought feels in your body when you're thinking it. Like, teach you be- how to be willing to have that emotion. And then we would want to work on a thought to replace it. So depending on what the problem was, we might end up wanting to have you want to practice thinking something like, you know, lots of people over 40 aren't married or... Mm-hmm. I've chosen, I mean, the thing with the not being married, not being in a relationship, I always think is fascinating because it is always the case that if the person's number one priority in life 
was being married or in a relationship, they couldn't. <laughs> They're not, yeah. Yeah, right? Like, we could all get married if that was the only thing we cared about. Yeah, <laughs> right? that is true. It's always, a ch- it's always a situation of having certain priorities and choices. Mm-hmm. And so often a lot of the work I do is helping people recognize and take ownership of that. It doesn't mean you don't want to change those in the future, maybe. But switching from like, I'm this victim, there's something wrong with me, this happened to me. Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's not that no one would marry me. Yeah. It's that I have decided I only want this kind of relationship and I, this, my career is more important, whatever choices I've made along the way that have created this for me. So taking back some of that power. So those are just like a couple of different yeah. ways of working on it. But if somebody at home is like, wants to do this on their own, the, the basic thing you can do is write down your thoughts about the situation, mm-hmm. pick one thought in there. And when I say one thought, I don't mean seven thoughts with semicolons in between them. I mean, literally one phrase, like it should be one phrase. And then looking at it and brainstorming. And this part is uncomfortable when you first start because you haven't done it before. So that's okay. It is a skill you don't have, right? People will always say to me like, well, I don't know what else I could think. And I'm like, yeah, of course, because you literally haven't tried until two seconds ago. Right. And you've been thinking this other thought this whole time. <laughs> so it's going to be uncomfortable for a minute mm-hmm. while you try to brainstorm something new to think. But like, let's try, right? Brainstorming something a little less negative, a little neutral. You're not going for feeling amazing. You're going for like the negative feeling in your body when you think there's something wrong with me because I'm not married. Mm-hmm. You're looking for a thought that helps that lift like 10%. You're not looking for your body to suddenly feel amazing. Yeah. Uh, I have have a podcast episode called The Thought Ladder that people can go listen to that talks them through it. Okay, cool. I I appreciate that more than you can imagine. I like the fact that this is all based on real incremental change. You're not asking people to do things that sound ridiculous or unrealistic. But in talking to you, one of the the, the sense I get is that one of our cognitive biases is that we tend to make these like broad generalizations. You take this one experience and you basically make it, I think, universal, right? You have like a bad breakup or something and it's like, oh, I'm unlovable or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. so I guess, you know, I wonder what are the other cognitive biases that you come across? And given that they're cognitive biases, is there any way that we can avoid our own cognitive biases? Yeah. I mean, so I think the most common one, there is for sure kind of generalizing. I think of that as um black, like black and white thinking that goes mm-hmm. with perfectionism a lot. And I'm guilty of this all the time. Like when I have fights with my boyfriend, he's always like, okay, so what you realize what you just said was you never or you always, mm-hmm. right? Like he's always pointing out that I still do that even after all this work. Although I'm a lot better at it now. Um, So black and white thinking, generalizing. I think the biggest one, though, and when I talk about cognitive bias, that there's that sort of can be a general term, but it's also a specific term for our brain's um, desire and ability to only see and retain evidence that supports our pre-existing beliefs. Mm -hmm. So you would be astounded how many people come to me and are like, well, I've just never been in a real relationship because I'm unlovable. And then when I make them write their romantic history, they've had like seven partners. <laughs> but in their brain, they've discounted every single one. Yeah. Because their fundamental belief is I'm not someone who has partners, right? Or I'm not someone who has good relationships. And so everything gets discounted. Same with jobs, right? I've never been good at my job. I've never felt confident in my job. You have them write their history new- with neutral facts. You know, they've like won a Nobel Prize. Like yeah. it's really astounding. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a there's a famous experiment which I myself have have done before I knew about this work. And actually, I watched it in law school. And I was victim to it like anyone else where 
you show people a video and you ask them to count the, um, it's a basketball team passing a basketball all around, you know, very quickly. And you ask them to count the number of passes. And so they do, and they think that's what they're doing. And at the end, you ask them if anything else happened and nobody else saw anything. But if you watch the video again without counting, you see that a gr- literally a man in a gorilla suit walks through the video. Mm-hmm. And your brain literally siphons it out. It's just like most of us can't see our own nose. Your brain, you do see your own nose. Your brain filters that out of the visual representation of your own, of your, your visual field. Mm. Your brain is like, we think that we are observing reality. We are not. Our brain is, I mean, if you really get into the neuroscience, there's an amazing TED talk that's called something like, I forget what it is. It's basically just like you're hallucinating all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that's you. That's what your brain is doing. And so when, when cognitive bias is active, you have a thought. People think when I describe it that like they'd be conscious of it. It's like, you know, your brain's not even showing you the rest of the evidence. Mm. It literally filters out. But what is amazing about the human brain, the reason that like meditation or philosophy or self-development is possible is that, and who knows why, we are somehow able to observe our own consciousness, right? That's like the watcher, they call it a meditation. Like we are, and obviously, you know, like self-help people now didn't invent this. (laughs) People have been talking about it for millennia. We're able to observe our own thinking. Mm. So you can, and the best way to, the best way to get good at that, I think is to whatever your belief is. I usually, I have people like write out their whole story the way they believe it. Like, let's get those thoughts out. And you know, everybody wants to tell you all their thoughts they believe are true. (laughs) Right. So you like do that even for yourself, like write the story the way you already believe it. But then you have to give yourself the task of looking for evidence of the opposite proposition, mm-hmm. right? And this is like kind of where the lawyer brain comes in handy a little bit. Yeah. So if your thought is like people who, you know, there's something wrong with me because I'm not married, you could, you know, you would go look for evidence of the contrary, right? Or if your thought is I've never been in a real relationship, you go look for evidence of the contrary. Or if your thought is I'm not good at my job, look for evidence of the contrary, right? Go like if you were cross-examining that witness, and they were unreliable, what would you look for? What would you ask them? So we can learn how to look for evidence the contrary. And I still do that all the time. Like throughout the day, as my brain says some random thing to me that is painful and probably not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what's the evidence the contrary? Like how can I see that things could be exactly the opposite? Wow. So yeah, you can train yourself to do it and it really will blow your mind how much shit you think is true. Yeah. Turns out to not be at all. Wow. Um, well, this has been amazing. I can see why Cher uh, referred to you. I, you know, I, I love this because there's, it's so practical. Like I can put it to use immediately. You know, to me, that is one yeah. of my favorite things. And you also have given us a lot to think about. So um, I want to finish with one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? That's a great question. What do I think makes someone unmistakable? I think it's authenticity and self-acceptance. I really do. I think about this a lot. Like, why have I been successful very quickly in this industry? Like, why do people, re- like, a lot of people are teaching the same things, right? Mm-hmm. In different ways. Like, why does my, why is my teaching drawing people where some other people's isn't? And I really don't think it's like, oh, well, you went to a fancy school or like, you're so good at explaining things or, you know, your hair is nice, whatever the explanations might be, right? Certainly not like, because you're a size two blonde. Uh, I really think it's that, like, I'm always my best first client. I have done all the work on myself. You can't fake that. 
And I think the reason that like my teaching resonates with people and which is my form of creativity, right? Like how I write and think about this work and how I develop the work past what I was taught. I think that it resonates because it's so real and true. It is exactly what's happening in my brain. Mm being willing to do the work on myself and be authentic about where I am, what I have figured out, where I don't have it figured out. Like all of that comes from having been willing to do the deep work on self-acceptance. If you truly accept yourself, there's nothing you're not willing to share and there's nothing you're not willing to talk about and there's nothing you're not willing to teach. And I think that's what sets probably creativity in any realm apart is like that, that no holding back is what I think draws people to anything. Hmm. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and sharing your insights and your uh, wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything else that you're up to? Yeah, it's been a blast. Um, I have my own podcast. So if anything here, you know, tipped your fancy. I don't think that's a word. Tweaked your, (laughs) peaked your fancy. There we go. Uh, It's called Unfuck Your Brain for obvious reasons. Uh, you can find it wherever you find podcasts. And I think that's really the best place to connect with me. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.